Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more, from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash slate money. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. And by Headspace. If you've ever been curious about meditation, then go to headspace.com slash money and try the Take 10 program. It's guided meditation for 10 days, 10 minutes a day, absolutely free. Give it a try at headspace.com slash money. Hello, hello, and welcome to this is an experiment. This is the most exciting version of Slate Money that anyone has ever experienced. Um, so, f- first of all, thank you for coming. And this is a live version of Slate Money. We are recording from the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, and in front of a bunch of really fantastic people, but with two insanely awesome special guests. Two insanely awesome special guests. The first one, come out, special guest number one, introduce yourself. Gideon Litchfield. Gideon Litchfield, a senior editor at Quartz, because we don't have enough English senior editor types on Slate Money, so we have another one. And we also have... Hi. Hello, you are? I'm Rose. Uh, I'm the host and producer of a podcast called Flash Forward. Flash Forward. Go subscribe to Flash Forward in your um, podcasting app. app. So this is all part of the Future History Festival. And the conceit of the Future History Festival is that we're looking back upon the present from the perspective of the future. We're trying to see what things which feel normal today are going to feel really weird when we look back on them in 50 or 100 years' time. And Gideon, it strikes me that one of the weirdest and most unintuitive things that we do on this planet is that 
billions of people, if not absolutely every single one of us, is discriminated against on the basis of where we are born. That if you're born in Bangladesh, you have just a completely different opportunity set from if you're born in Luxembourg. So is, how weird is this and is this going to change? So how is indeed this idea, especially today, as more and more people are migrating to escape war or economic crisis or uh, politicians with terrible hair, how... And the criteria by which that decide which country you can go to are basically your passport. How strange might that look in the future? So one, one thing that occurred to me is, well, what if there were some kind of, you know, over time, countries unify their identity databases. Um, this is effectively the U.S. already has a lot of information about what goes on in the rest of the world. And everyone ends up with a kind of identity which is not really based so much on the country you were born in, but essentially you could call it a gamification, uh, where you accumulate points that determine your fitness to enter different countries. So that might be determined on how much money you have, uh, what professions you worked in, how clean your criminal record is. Now, this, this happens already, right? There are countries like Canada and New Zealand whose immigration services work on a point system. Right. And so... But this is also weirdly dystopian, right? If you're part of the cognitive elite, you get to live and work wherever you like. And if you're not, then what? You're stuck in some fourth-tier country somewhere? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that this is the reason why this system might catch on. It's, it's, because, it, because, it's it, because it's terrible. Well, for both, it might catch on because it looks theoretically uh, egalitarian. No longer do you have to be discriminated against just because you're from Bangladesh. If you're you know, educated and hardworking and so forth, and you're from Bangladesh, you get automatic entry to any country you want in the world. But, as you say, it will end up discriminating in many other ways because uh, for some people it will just be much harder to get those opportunities. Some people will be discriminated against because of some mistake they made, just like now you make a mistake and your credit report is, is all messed up. So it's, it's ripe for abuse as well. Rose, is, um, is this whole concept of countries and borders and needing passports to get from one country to another country, I feel is a relatively new concept. That It used to be that you could take the grand tour around Europe and no one would ever ask you for your passport. Is that going to feel weird to us? Or are countries here to stay? I mean, I think it probably depends, like everything, about how far in the future you want to talk about. So, you know, when our global apocalypse happens, there won't be any countries and borders, yay. But we also will be traveling, you know, like we're in The Walking Dead. Um, but I think also you have an issue of, like, the reason that a lot of these borders exist is ostensibly for security. And that is something that I don't see people stopping worrying about. Um, and so it's hard to see people saying, like, yeah... Uh, no, we don't need that anymore because we're all feeling super safe. Is, is it true that countries with stricter border controls are safer? No, absolutely not. But that is like the fiction, right, that we are sold. Uh, and I think it's very difficult politically to come in and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up all the borders and just let anybody come on in, which is, is, has been a conversation recently because of migration, which we'll, we can talk and, about. And, well, Gideon, we, I mean, this is a thing which exists in the world. There's something called the Schengen Group. In, which is a large chunk of continental Europe, where you can just travel around from country to country without showing passports, without border controls. Um, how's that worked out? How has that worked out for Europe? Well, it's worked out pretty terrible in terms of the economics, 
But of course, people you know, find that, that ease of migration because it was set up with the European Union's rules was terrible for the economy. But um, how is it working? How would it work in other countries? Was it bad for the economy or was it good? I thought the problem with Schengen is it didn't work well enough. That if you had genuinely free labor, if you had all of those unemployed people in Spain just moving to Germany because they could and that's where the jobs were, then you wouldn't have the unemployment in Spain anymore. And that the problem with Schengen is that it didn't work well enough rather than that it itself was bad for the economy. Well, fair enough. I mean, the European Union was set up where it was, it was a unified community in some respects and not in others. So, but the fact is that the people of Europe were on board with bringing down the borders. Of course. And so, I mean, that cuts against what Rose was saying. Rose was saying that people aren't going to want to bring down borders. But I they... guess I'm an American. <laughs> but but the, um, America is the United States of 50 different states, none of which have any borders between them, and people love that. I took the train down to Baltimore from New York. I don't even know how many states I went through because it was invisible to me. 18. <laughs> but will that be true in the future? I mean, there are more and more, you know, there's increasing drought in the Southwest. There's a famous science fiction novel, The Water Knife, by Paolo Bacigalopi, which is about when things dry up so much that uh, the states start to erect borders between them, and it becomes as hard to get from Arizona to Nevada as it is now from, the Me- from Mexico to the U.S. We can imagine borders will change over time depending on what the conditions are. And... Borders are just intimately connected with this idea of if you're born somewhere, then that's where you're going to live. And if you want to change the state in which you live, that involves going through a huge number of hoops and visas and immigration purposes. Well, so this is where I think things could change, that those borders will still exist and they might be extremely strict, possibly even stricter than they are today. But the criteria by which it's decided which border you can cross that's what will change. It won't be the color of your passport anymore. It'll be how many points you've racked up in some global gamification of, of migration, essentially. And countries will you know, have large international conferences where they argue about which criteria they can set uh, to allow people in or not allow people in. Okay, so this is, this is the perfect segue to um, the next little segment here, which is the main cause of international migration in the future, and to some extent even in the present. Um, Before we talk about that, I need to talk about the sponsor of Slate Money, which is Texture, which is an app which lives on your iPad or your phone or whatever device you have, and it gives you every magazine in Christendom, basically. You get GQ or Men's Health or Vogue or Consumer Reports or anything you want, and you can read all of the articles in all of the magazines, not just the current issue, but all of the back issues. You can search on any subject you like. You can read across one subject, across different magazines. You can find those articles which you really wanted to read from years ago. Um, and the whole thing costs less than just buying like a handful of magazines at a newsstand. It's kind of a no-brainer. So the way you get your free trial of Texture is to go to this thing called texture.com slash Slate money. So go to texture.com slash slate money and try it for free. And if you don't like it, no harm, no foul, but you'll love it. Um, Rose. Yes. What is the single most important cause of future migration on planet Earth? So I have the honor to talk to you about the very uplifting subject of climate change. 
um, which is something that I think it's hard to talk about the future at all without talking about climate change. It's actually kind of hard to talk about the present without talking about climate change. Um, and that is something that we already see makes people move. And, and interestingly, um, one of the things that I think that people think is the case with climate change that isn't is that we hear that climate change is going to cause increased sort of superstorms, right? We already start to see some of this, like heavier uh, or more intense hurricanes, all of that. That's actually not what displaces people in general. After a single event like that, people tend to stay. But what happens is that after sort of continuous but slightly less intense changes in their climate, they, they move. So they can't farm anymore. They can't live in a place there's no water. There was a study in Pakistan that looked at what made people move and migrate out of the country, and it was overwhelmingly not drought or not like single floods it was that it's too hot for them to grow crops there anymore so people are moving so that's the big so you know more simply if your city is underwater you can't live there anymore (laughs) yes that's also true yet although you know i get lots of technology pitches for people devising underwater cities i'm not so sure how i feel about that but um but yeah it is difficult to live somewhere when your house is half underwater so the first question is um the migration flows which are caused by climate change, are these going to be mostly domestic? Are people just going to move to high ground? Or is, are we going to see major international migration flows? Are we going to see you know, a majority of the population of Bangladesh suddenly realizing that Bangladesh is underwater and they need to be somewhere else? So I think a lot of it comes down to sort of what we were just talking about earlier, which is how hard or easy is it to move? Um, And we've seen some migrations already. We already see that climate change is causing people like in Pakistan to move. They tend not to go very far, though. And so I think that in general, it depends. So um, in 2010 and 2011, about 42 million people in Asia were displaced due to weather events. And they mostly stayed within Asia. They didn't leave Asia. Um, so it sort of depends because then in other places, like in, in the United States, um, there's a great comic called We Stand on Guard, which is about the United States invading Canada for its natural resources, which is, I think, relatively realistic. <laughs> um, and in that case, you go north, and, and a lot of the, you know, the water situations in the United States, people go north and stay within North America. But it depends, and it's hard to say what will happen without knowing what the border situations are going to be and how locked down people might be. So, Gideon, what, what do you think the effect of climate change on global borders? Is it going to make them tougher because the people in the relatively well-off countries like Canada, say, are not going to want to have to deal with an influx of billions of people who are displaced by climate change? Well, I think it's going... Yes, I think it's going to be one of the contributing factors. And, of course, one of the things... The ways in which climate change contributes to migration is not directly uh, it's too hot to grow crops or there are too many storms or your city was flooded. Climate change, in some respects, uh, contributed to the conflict now in the Middle East because... It got harder to grow crops, for instance, in certain parts of Iraq. That contributed to radicalization because people didn't have economic opportunities and it sort of it fed into many other factors and, and, you, got, and you got radicalization there. Um, now in the Horn of Africa, there are people starting to leave and flow north, partly because they've seen the flood of refugees from Syria heading into Europe and they've seen that there are now pathways to do that. And so as the crops fail there, they start to move. So crops, you know, climate change causes... Uh, people to leave just because they can't grow crops, but also because it fuels conflict, and then people start to flee the wars, and then they go, so yes, more and more, you, I think you will start to see this, and then the question is, who lets them in, which is what the problem we're seeing in Europe now. The, the other question which I have is, we now live in a majority urban 
world, for the first time ever, more than 50% of the population of the planet lives in cities. Um, so how, how does this affect cities? Presumably most migrants are going to be attracted to cities more than to countries, maybe? It's possible. I mean, it, if New York is mostly underwater, is New York an attractive city to live in, even if you're fleeing global conflict? I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I think in, you know, this is the reason that the Pentagon is also interested in climate change, right? They've put out many reports talking about global unrest and how to prepare their, the U.S. cities for the, like, influx. So I think it's hard to say because we don't know what cities will look like. Maybe everybody moves to Chicago because it's nice and dry there. How, what's, what's the lifespan of a city, Gideon? Oh, the lifespan of a city, thousands of years. This is what I feel. I feel like cities, I mean, you look at Baltimore, and it used to be a lot richer than it is now, but it's still here, and there's still amazing stuff here. And it doesn't, you know, even when cities become poor um, or poorer than they used to be, there's still centers of economic activity in the way that almost nothing else is. Sure, but the, the nature of the city, how good the economy is, who lives there, I mean, that changes over time. You see what has happened to New York in the, in the last 30 years. We were talking earlier, what if Chicago is the new New York? If everybody moves there, that becomes the cultural and economic hub instead. All of that, all of that is possible. And presumably the cities in the countries with the laxist immigration policies, the cities in the countries which can attract the most diverse and talented group of labor of, of human capital will be the cities which do the best in the global economy. And I think it's entirely possible that there will be migration controls to those sorts of cities. I mean, there's a precedent in the Soviet Union and in China that you had to have a registration in, in Russia, you, I think you still do, in fact, to, to live in a city, you have to have a, a, a permit to live in that city. Why would it not be possible in the future when everyone is being tracked by their mobile phone or some other device to say, all right, you're not allowed to live in Chicago and we know that you're in Chicago, you shouldn't be here. Uh, and only the people who have earned, in some sense or other, the, the, the right to be there are allowed to be there. As a New Yorker, I am completely down with this. We can, we, we can pick and choose who we want in New York. And the flip side of being able to say no to Americans is being able to say yes to all of these amazing people from the rest of the world that we really do want to join. I, I have some questions about this policy. <laughs> um, you, you, don't believe think, in, you don't believe in the island of Manhattan seceding from the United States? And becoming part of, and becoming part of the UK? I don't see that happening. Um, I think that for me this is much more dystopian than the two of you are describing. Because oh, I, I, I mean this as a dystopian. Okay, I, can't, <laughs> just I just clear. don't see a, a, a system in which you gain points for, for access to not be caught up in all of the systemic bias that we already have about who is who and who deserves what. It's and, terrible. And, and so, Gideon, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. This is a dystopian vision. And it's also an anti-democratic vision. That if you look at immigration into the United States, the overwhelming majority of immigration into the United States is not skills-based immigration on H-1Bs or whatever the politicians really care about. It's families. It's p families being reunited. And that is all... That has driven... U.S. immigration for decades, is there any reason to believe that it, that will stop? That America or any other country will start saying, well, you know, you guys are related, but you're still not allowed to reunite. We're only interested in computer engineers. I feel like the democratic imp impulse is always to just look at this on a 
very compassionate, humanistic level more than it is on a sort of technocratic, what can you do for us level. Well, right, but you know, the other, if we were going to be optimistic about it, then the other approach that a country like the United States might take is to say, what are the conditions that are causing immigration from neighboring countries or from further away, and what can we do to mitigate that? How can we help improve the economies and the, uh, the, the, you know, of those countries so that people aren't feeling pressured to move? That might be another alternative, because you're right, that democratically it's not going to work if you start... It's, it's, it's going to be very anti-democratic if, if uh, you start discriminating on, on that basis. Okay, so we're going to move on to this whole question of democracy, which is like, you know, the big, um, the, the big elephant in the room. Um, once I talked to you about ZipRecruiter, which is the next sponsor of Slate Money, which is a job ad. So if you want to hire someone in the United States on the grounds that you can't just hire anyone from anywhere in the world because we don't have that economy yet. Um, you can either just place your job ads in a million different job sites and spend a huge amount of time and effort doing that, or you can go to ziprecruiter.com and just put your job ad up once, and it reaches millions, literally like four million people. They have four million resumes. It's been used by over 400,000 businesses, and it's free. This is the amazing thing. If you want to hire someone, you can actually just hire them for free because you get a free trial of ZipRecruiter if you go to ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. So that's a good move right there. ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. It's not going to solve all of the immigration problems, but it will solve your recruitment problems. The next thing I really wanted to talk about though was exactly this question of democracy and capitalism writ large, and I wanted to be quite explicit about this on a show called Slate Money, which is we are living in an incredibly capitalist world. The capitalism is even more ubiquitous than democracy. Democracy has been on the rise for decades, but capitalism even more so. You get very undemocratic capitalist country, you know, societies like China. Um, is this a long-term secular trend that we'll see probably more um, democracy and certainly more capitalism, or is this a cycle? I mean, I, I feel like capitalism, as you said, writ large, in some form or another, is what we're stuck with for at least the foreseeable future. As long as there is scarcity of resources, which is what drives people to make transactions and try and swap things with each other, I think basically that drives you towards capitalism. But let's recognize that, like democracy, capitalism comes in many, many, many flavors, and it's far from the idealistic version of capitalism almost anywhere, certainly in the United States. So the, the beautiful idealistic version of capitalism which people love to talk about these days is this thing called the universal basic income, um, where basically if you have a pulse and you live in a certain country, and again, you just have to keep on coming back to this idea of countries, but you can easily imagine a world where this is a global thing and it's genuinely universal. Um, you just get... a check every month for what you need to live. So $1,500 a month, something like that. And everyone gets it. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. It doesn't matter if you're a felon. Everyone gets this basic income. And then once you do that, that frees people up to really be creative and to do what they love. And it helps to eradicate poverty, and it just has a huge host of positive effects. Which you described just now as a capitalist dream, 
or a capitalist ideal, although it's completely socialist, right? It's, it, and, it's, and what's interesting about it is that the people who are pushing this idea of the universal basic income tend to be the ultra-capitalists of Silicon Valley, who are seeing it as a solution to what? To, to the problems that their the, technology is creating. Absolutely, and this is, this is one of the most fascinating things, is it's kind of this mind meld between the Marxians who've been talking about this idea for a while now, but now it's been picked up by the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who are saying, the robots are coming and they're going to take all of our jobs, and so the only way that we can enjoy our lives in a world where we can't work for a living anymore because our jobs have been stolen by the robots is if we just all get an income from the government. Do you buy this, Rose? In, do I buy it in what way? I mean, do you think it's A, plausible? I mean, do you think any of this is plausible? Or do you think... Because there have been, there have been little pockets of experiments yeah. with, with this, but it's never been done on a super large scale. I think um, I'm going to give a boring answer, which is that it's really hard to tell, right? Which is why uh, all the experiments that have been done have been really small scale, because implementing this on a large scale would be really difficult. Um, I think Y Combinator wants to do an experiment right now. That they're, they're trying to fund a experiment on basic in, uh, universal basic income in San Francisco, and they got a lot of backlash when they announced it because um, they seemed to have not read any of the other studies that had ever been done on it. <laughs> they're like, we're the first people to ever do this, um, and a lot of academics who have done these studies, which are very difficult to do, um, were a little bit riled up. But um, it's one of those situations in which it's difficult to, to do a halfway. It's difficult to do a study because you know, it's a universal basic income. If you and, and it's also not incredibly clearly defined. I mean, as Gideon was saying, they do have a lot of common ground between the Marxians and the um, libertarian capitalists. Um, but at the same time, there are differences. That if, you talk, if you listen to what the venture capitalists are saying, a lot of them are saying, this is a great way to dismantle the welfare state. Once you have a universal basic income, you no longer need Medicare and Medicaid and, um, and even free education, whereas the left, who are also pushing the basic universal basic income, are saying, no, no, this goes on top of free education, free healthcare. One, you know, you that's a given as well. It's a universal basic healthcare and education and income. So there are definitely dif disagreements. Yes, I mean, the philosophy behind universal basic income is the very ha capitalist libertarian philosophy, which is the individual is the one best, best place to decide how to spend resources on themselves. Whereas the more socialistic view or, or social democratic view would be, no, the government needs to take some decisions on behalf of the individual because people are not either capable or well-informed enough to, to do that. And if you give the, just give them a basic income and say, you sort out your living, healthcare, food, and everything else, then you'll have a lot of people who fall down the cracks. So one of the very trendy things in philanthropy right now is this thing called unconditional cash transfers, which is basically this idea that individuals know how to spend money in their own interest much better than anyone else does. So, Rose, is this idea that the government is best placed to provide things like healthcare and education, is this ridiculously paternalistic and would we be better off if we just took all of the money that we're spending on healthcare and education and gave it to people in the form of a check? 
I think it's difficult to talk about healthcare and education and all of these other things in the same way because um, in order for healthcare to work, you need providers and people don't necessarily know what kinds of healthcare they need or where to go and, and all of that. So um, I don't know. <laughs> is that a terrible answer? <laughs> no, not, not knowing is... <laughs> I don't it, think anyone is, knows the answer When you're talking that. about the future, not knowing <laughs> is the base, base from which we're working. But Gideon has an answer. I haven't, I'm Gideon, knows. <laughs> Gideon knows. Gideon knows, knows all. I think, I, no, I think that simply if, if everything were reduced to a, to a cash transfer to basic income and people had to sort out everything for themselves, it would be a disaster. No, I think that you do need a certain level of paternalism to help people, not, not least to help the people who have more trouble making the decisions, but you know, to, in order to, to, to have a system that functions well for the society as a whole. Um, and so part of the, I think part of the disagreement about the universal basic income is indeed this, is just how much is it supposed to cover. Um, but then the other one is, all right, supposing that you have basic services maintained and you have basic levels of health care and social, social services and you give people a universal basic income. The real question is, will that be enough to compensate for all the disappearing jobs? And, and do you buy this quasi-dystopian Silicon Valley view that after, call it, 200 years of automation being a job creation engine, it is now a job destruction engine? I don't know which view I buy. I mean, there's been obviously a lot of research on this, and there are studies suggesting that... There there was actually a a study, uh, I think, last year, where they asked quite a large number of experts precisely this question. Is, is technology now going to create more jobs than it destroys or destroy more jobs than it creates? Uh, and these experts of all different fields were split basically right down the middle. Nobody can, can decide because there is an argument that says, no, technology has always led to the creation of new kinds of jobs. It's put some people out of work, but it's created new opportunities. And there's another one that says, no, there's something qualitatively different about this about the fact that we are now creating machines that are intelligent enough to do a lot of things that we really only thought we really thought only a human could do. Um, so I actually have no idea where I come down on it. I like that. I like, I like leaving things in a zone of uncertainty and bimodal distributions because it's reality. You know, We can't just pretend that we have the answers to these things. Um, I, we're going to end with the numbers round, as we always do, but first I need to talk... You're going to like this sponsor. In the, uh, the sort of Spark Camp crowd especially is going to like this. Headspace. I don't know how many people here have heard about Headspace. Um, Amanda Mickle in the corner is a big fan of Headspace. Headspace is an app. Um, you can try it out for free, and it's worth doing. It's not a utilitarian thing, but it really does make your life much better. It's a way of just spending 10 minutes a day to carve out 10 minutes from your day to meditate, basically. Just be aware of yourself. If you're angry, if you're confused, if you're nervous... um, I'm in headspace right now. Then, you know, what it does is it gives you the ability to step back, look at your emotional state in a kind of, like, arm's-length way, and just take a breath and put things into perspective and be mindful in the world and... It really can transform the way that you live your life and the way that you relate to other people. So try it out at headspace.com slash money. You'll get 10-minute sessions. They're very friendly. They're little animations. It's not crazy kooky stuff. It's 
down to earth, but it's also just very calming and worth a try. So headspace.com slash money is... Um, try it. Okay, numbers. Uh, Gideon, what was your number? Uh, my number is 58 million. Uh, 58 million is the number of people in the world this year who are displaced, uh, either refugees or internally displaced. And what's striking about this number is that it is roughly three times the number of people who were displaced in 2001, 15 years ago. Um, and what is also striking about that number is that these are, these are people displaced by conflict, essentially. Uh, but although the number of people displaced has risen has tripled in 15 years, the number of conflicts around the world has fallen from about 70 in 2001 to about 40 now. So there is something about the nature of conflict uh, that is causing much, much more, uh, you know, maybe it's just a period in this, in this epoch, but something about these conflicts is causing much, much more uprooting and displacing of people from their countries. And this is the highest number of people displaced by war since World War II. And I think my number puts that number in context. I have a little opinion poll number, basically, that if there was this huge global poll, and it asked basically everyone on the planet, insofar as you can do that, um, if you had the opportunity, would you move out of your country? Is that something you would want to do? And globally... 13% of people said yes, which means 87% of people are perfectly happy staying where they are in, in terms of country. 13% of people is about 630 million people would like to leave their country and move permanently somewhere else. But the fact is that although they say that, they, might, they would like to, humans being humans, we tend to be lazy, you know, and most people don't. But in any case, of that 630 million, 138 million would like to move to the US. Now, in the context of 8 billion people in the world, this is not that enormous. Given that most of the 138 million people who theoretically might like to move to the US in practice are never going to get around to it, I have this feeling that if the US just simply opened up all of its borders to everyone, this sort of dystopian, there's that word again, um, influx of migrants which would just transform the economy would actually be surprisingly much smaller than people think it might be. Americans, of course, being Americans, greatest country on earth, are all convinced that the entire planet really wants to move here and we need, we need to, you know, be very, um, you know, take enormous care to make sure that we prevent that from happening. But I, I'm not convinced that it would happen. I don't want to hear it. Everybody wants to move to the United States. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. What's your number, Rose? So my number is 2 million. And let's say that I wanted to go out and convince you of something. And I wanted to know what the best strategy is to convince you. Now, doing a study on real-world persuasion techniques is really, really expensive. Each study costs $2 million. Um, but recently, some researchers have figured out a better way to do that that actually costs $25,000 per study instead of $2 million, which is pretty exciting. And the studies they actually based that on was on LGBT rights. And it's a really interesting like, new development in how we can do these kinds of things, which I think is cool because we actually don't know very much about real-world persuasion as opposed to like bringing a bunch of undergraduate psychology students into a lab and like asking them a couple of questions. This, this is a, I mean, the, the one I really want to do is 
find a way of persuading people that they should vaccinate their kids. Yeah, that'd be great. Because there have been a bunch of studies which show that if you take people who don't want to vaccinate their kids and you sit them down and you walk them through the science and you explain all the facts and and, and it becomes very obvious that they should vaccinate their kids, and then at the end of all of that, you ask them, well, are you going to vaccinate your kids? They, they say even less. Yeah. They, they, they say, no, I'm still not going to do it. I completely understand everything you told me, and I'm still not going to do it, and I'm even more adamant now than I was before. So yeah. if we can find a way of persuading people... That's common, not just with vaccines. It's, it's most things when you try to convince somebody of something, the more facts you give them, the more likely they are to become entrenched in their original position. There are, there's a lot of data on that. We haven't used the word Donald Trump in this podcast yet, and we're not going to use it. I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say Donald Trump. <laughs> um, I did mention politicians with bad hair, though. Could be a lot of people. <laughs> it could be a lot of people. But then, that really is it for us this week. Thank you all here in Baltimore for coming out for the live taping of Slate Money. Um, thank you very much to Gideon Litchfield. To Rose Elizabeth, I have to say this. Rose is not only the best guest that we've ever had on Slate Money, but she is also the technical genius who made this entire recording possible. Without Rose, literally, you would not be hearing us at all. So a big hand for Rose Oliver. Um, And then to everyone at Panoply Media, iTunes.com slash Panoply. And yeah, we will do a slightly more orthodox version of Slate Money. Thank you. Slate Money is brought to you by Betterment. It's time to take control of your financial future, and Betterment is the largest independent robo-advisor. This automated investing service serves over 150,000 customers. They manage over $4 billion for people just like you. It's never too late to save for retirement or other financial goals. And Betterment has changed the industry by making investing easier and cheaper. You can get more information and up to six months of automated investing free when you go to betterment.com slash slate money. That's betterment.com slash slate money. Betterment, investing made better. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.